Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm excited to bring in Bob Inglis. He's an executive director at uh, RepublicEN.org. It's a nonprofit climate change group that he founded. He is also a former South Carolina Republican congressman, uh, both in the 1990s and the 2000s, and a former climate change denier who has turned into an environmental activist. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on this day when we are going to receive, ostensibly at 3 p.m. today, uh, New York Time, a decision from President Trump on whether or not the U.S. will remain part of the Paris Accord. Bob, I want to get started with the reaction that you faced when you changed your mind and went from being a climate change denier uh, to somebody who is actively advocating the need to change practices in order to preserve the environment. Why do you think you got so much pushback from fellow conservatives? Well, unfortunately, Lisa, that was during the midst of the Great Recession. And so probably not good timing on my part. But, uh, but you know, when I came to that conviction that really this is real and something we need to attend to, um, I had to, had to do that. But um, I think it's a different situation now. And members of Congress who are conservative, truly conservative, um, can do this more safely than I did it uh, back in the days of the Great Recession. Because when you did it, it cost you your seat, no? Right. That plus some other heresies that I'd committed, but uh, against what became Republican orthodoxy at the time. You know, when a tribe's under pressure, orthodoxy becomes very important. And so because you're circling the wagons uh, to protect the food supply of the tribe, right? But but now that the economy is doing better and people are seeing um, the results of how, how, how renewables can really uh, feed into the grid well, how we can repower our lives, how this is really pretty exciting free enterprise opportunity, then, uh, then they can, uh, they can uh, state it differently, and it would be a different reaction than what I got, like I say, in the dark days of the Great Recession. Well, you know, I just want to follow up with that because I'm wondering maybe you can offer some insight. I mean, if you, uh, not you personally, but if one is uh, describing himself as a conservative, why not err on the side of caution? And whether climate change is man-made or not, why not take action in order to mitigate its deleterious effects. I mean, wouldn't you want to side on the, uh, uh, you know, with caution and and protect the environment, even if it wasn't man-made? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I like to tell audiences sometimes, here's a fresh $20 bill for anybody who will call their insurance company and cancel your homeowner's insurance just for tonight. Because I'm pretty sure your house isn't going to burn down tonight. And the this $20 is worth more than the probability of your house burning tonight. Anybody take the offer? You know, Nobody's going to take the offer, right? Because you buy insurance, uh, like Secretary of State George Schultz likes to say, against things that, you, that could be really catastrophic. And the key to it is whether it's affordable insurance. And the reality is there is a way to make this affordable, to make essentially affordable climate insurance by doing a tax swap, untaxing income, putting a tax on carbon dioxide, 
making it apply to imports so the whole world follows American leadership. And essentially, you buy this insurance policy that um, that protects us against the downside risk, and it is significant, uh, of the effects of climate change. Well, Bob, I imagine that you still are uh, in communication with a number of Republican leaders in Congress currently. Are there many others who feel similarly to you at this point? Yeah, and a lot of them are in the process of figuring out, uh, can they come out on this? You know, and really it is a little bit like coming out uh, to come out on climate. Um, and so, but that's that's going to change just as this is that other matter change. This is changing. People are realizing that, of course, we've got a problem here. And up until now, what conservatives have heard is it's a big government that's going to solve it. Once they hear that there's a small government way to do this, then they can they can open to it. Right. Well, but Bob, I think that one of the main criticisms on behalf uh, of conservatives against some of these agreements is that they impede free market activities and that they basically uh, put a thumb on a weight on a scale uh, simply on a belief, but not necessarily uh, with the knowledge that this will definitely make everything better. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. If you really believe in free markets as I do, and as we do at RepublicEN.org, then you want all the cost in on all the fuels and all the subsidies removed. And on that level playing field, we believe that free enterprise can deliver innovation faster than government mandates or fickle tax incentives could ever imagine. And so a true belief in free markets says, okay, all cost in, all subsidies out, and then compete, right? And so the government's only role is to be the honest cop on the beat that says uh, that, that enforces that that level playing field. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks very much, uh, Bob Inglis. We look forward to hearing you uh, hearing from you in the future. Bob Inglis is the executive director of RepublicEN.org. It is a nonprofit climate change advocacy group. He's also a former GOP congressman from South Carolina's fourth congressional district. Well, the Miami Marlins, they didn't necessarily take on the Philadelphia Phillies yesterday in an empty stadium, but it was pretty close. About 1,590 fans, 1,590 fans were in the uh, stadium at Marlins Park for the afternoon game. So why would anyone want to buy a Major League Baseball team? Well, here to tell us is Chris Russo. He is the head of the sports practice at Hulhan Loki. Chris, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. So tell me about the Marlins, because, I mean, this there's been a bidding war for the Marlins, but why a bidding war for a team that can, can't even draw 2,000 spectators? Well, there certainly have been a lot of reports over the past month uh, about potential bids from Derek Jeter and, and Jeb Bush, uh, from Mitt Romney's son. And part of the appeal is uh, for these professional sports teams, they become pretty good businesses. The, the rights fees that are being paid by television have grown dramatically. Sponsorship has grown. Licensing has grown. And the reality of it is there's a real scarcity of teams available. The Marlins is practically the only team that appears to be available. And there's really only been a couple of deals in the last two years among the four major leagues. So there's really a scarcity factor that drives the interest in some of these clubs. Let's say a team does want to examine the field for a buyer. 
do you have a set field of potential buyers out there or is that sort of approaching anyone who has a, a certain amount of net income or a certain amount of wealth above a certain amount and then they become a candidate? In in recent years, the buyers have tended to be uh, hedge fund owners, uh, technology uh, owners and, and business people, high net worth individuals. And there's a universe of folks that have either tried to buy previous teams or have expressed public interest that are typically the first ones at bat when a team like this uh, comes up. You need a lot of wealth and, and you need a lot of wealth in a relatively few amount of people. So it does kind of limit the field. All right, limiting the field, but there's certainly a lot of people who want to get in on this, at least in terms of being able to stream or broadcast sports, Amazon.com, Hulu, Netflix, Twitter, Facebook. Are they going to drive up the prices for everybody else? I, I believe that uh, those companies, again, uh, Hulu, as you mentioned, Netflix that aren't currently aggressively in sports may ultimately play a role there. Uh, uh, Amazon recently acquired NFL rights. Uh, Twitter had NFL rights last year. Facebook is now streaming baseball games. This is really good news for the sports leagues and organizations because they now have new bidders in the mix who can drive up the prices. You'll still have some of the traditional media companies involved in wanting to have those game rights, but I think that competition is good for the owners. So how much of your job is facilitating deals with people purchasing major league teams or minor league teams? And how much is talking with people in the sports universe about investing their wealth? Because you also you do both, right? Yeah, we, we focus on being an advisor on mergers and acquisitions deals and capital raising. And in my particular case, in the sports space, that includes not only teams, though, that includes sports businesses. Uh, last year, there were transactions involving companies like Formula One and UFC and Learfield Sports, and we were involved in a deal involving a company called World Golf Tour that was sold to Top Golf. So we advise businesses and potentially teams around sports transactions, really around M&A and capital raising. So you'd probably have a fantastic view into ESPN and some of the woes that we've seen there with the viewership going down. Do you see a similar kind of decrease in interest across the various sports businesses that rely on consumers to pay for the consumption of sports? I don't think there's a decrease uh, in interest in sports or even paying for sports. I think it's going to be done differently over time. I think consumers are going to pay more directly for the sports they consume through digital outlets as opposed to necessarily buying big cable bundles that include sports among everything else. So I think the interest in sports is continuing to grow. I think the way sports is being delivered is changing and it's starting to change pretty rapidly. Is there a particular sport or league that is new that would allow new entrants at lower price points? I'm thinking, for example, there's Drone Racing League, right? Sure. I mean, if you want to race your drone, there's a team, I guess, and you can participate, or even vi watching other people play video games. Drone racing. Get it while it's hot, right? right? A absolutely. I, well, I, I mean, think about the, the video. Watching people <laughs> play video games in an arena draws more fans than the Marlins drew last yeah. e e Esports, e e which is what you're referring to, has become a huge phenomenon in terms of the fandom, in terms of streaming. There's a platform called Twitch that Amazon owns, enormous usage. And so I think what digital platforms do is they allow the emergence of new sports and properties, whether it is drone racing, whether it's eSports. There's a company called Flow Sports that provides coverage of, of some of the you know lesser uh, covered sports on TV like wrestling and, and, and track and field. And so that offers new opportunities for these sports to reach an audience.
So how about the traditional sports? Do you, uh, has your experience shown that the value of some of these major league baseball teams or football teams has uh, deteriorated as these other sports come up? I, I think the, the, the value of these teams, the major league teams, continues to rise in part because they're still benefiting from the large rights fees deals that are still in place from television and also because of the scarcity value. The question will be over time, do those media rights fees continue to be large even if they're from different sources or does that start to level off? But right now, again, there are so few teams available and such demand for them that the pricing continues to rise. Thank you so much for joining us. A truly fascinating area and one that I know that my husband will be asking me a lot about uh, tonight. As an I can see you getting fan. into drone racing. Drone racing? Sure. Oh, you think so? Yeah. What would be the like technical uh, You can sit here? and use, you know, you can, you can sit, sit down. You, you can, can watch. You can sit and watch. All right. Chris Russo, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Russo is head of sports practice at Houlihan Loki, which is based in New York, talking to us about mergers and acquisition opportunities within both sports teams and sports businesses. You know, I, Pam, no, I don't think drone racing. No, no drone me. racing I mean, for you. Maybe like uh, shuffleboard. What's the. Uh, the um... Shuffleboard. <laughs> shuffleboard. We'll get you a ship to play that on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. It has been a painful year for anybody looking to invest really conservatively, uh, given the fact that gold and silver and some of the safe haven trades have not delivered the results that many uh, were hoping. Michael Cugino is president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, which oversees about $3 billion, and he joins us now. Michael, uh, I was looking at your uh, permanent portfolio. It's a $2.8 billion fund, uh, and I was looking at some of the top investments with gold, silver, treasuries. These have not been assets that have been as reliable this year. Do you still think that they are a worthwhile bet? And do you think that we are going to move to a more risk-off environment anytime soon? Yeah, good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, yeah, I think there's always room for diversified investing, and that's what we do in our permanent portfolio. So uh, I wouldn't say gold and silver have had awful years. They, uh, you know, they're doing okay. They're, uh, but but realistically, right now, given the the interest rate curve, given corporate earnings, given the likelihood of additional growth, um, kind of a bent towards policy tax uh, regulation, or at least that's what we're all expecting at some point in time, um, there is uh, little resistance to stocks continuing to drift up. And, and so that's what happened. And so while we would advocate a healthy uh, uh, investment in stocks, as well, because that is a growth asset class. We also uh, diversify ourselves among a bunch of other asset classes, just in the event that the economy turns to account for multiple scenarios to profit, but also protect against downside risk. So I think there's always a good time to be diversified and to to hedge your bets, even in a, a positive stock market environment. All right, Michael, I wonder if you could tell us what is the most unloved investment category that you've been presented with over the last quarter? 
I would say probably energy, um, materials, and uh, and maybe financials from an equity market standpoint. Um, you know, because some of those trades had a had a a good bump post election on expectations um, of of those types of industries outperforming. Yet, uh, while the economy is still growing, the economy so far this year sort of continues to look a lot like the last couple of years. And so, uh, we don't know where we're going to end up in Q2, but Q1 wasn't great. Um, and so, you're still looking at this sort of one to two percent kind of annualized GDP growth. I think everybody expects this catalyst through policy and tax and less regulation and but but to date nothing's been passed and so you've had incremental gains in that area and as a result you haven't had the the economic momentum to get us to high twos to three percent GDP so as a result the stocks that would benefit in that environment the energies the uh, the you know the transports the financials the industrials it's been a lot more of a mixed picture in those types of industries and people have reverted to the you know the high profile you you know, Fang plus five type stocks and and other types of uh, growth names, and that's where a lot of liquidity's gone as well. Michael, I'd love to get your take on some comments that we heard earlier in the show from Leo Grohowski. He's the chief investment officer at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, and he was saying that he does think that uh, that the market is still has value. The the stock market, U.S. stock market in particular, he's going into emerging markets. He's basically uh, going for the risk on trade, including technology shares. Uh, as well as others. I'm wondering, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think that that is the correct bet for somebody uh, generally to sort of uh, use that as a guiding principle while making allocations right now? I, I sure do. And I think, you know, we, we talked about our permanent portfolio being somewhat conservative and, and sort of, you know, a downside risk protector. But we also invested to make up for that, to provide growth in our portfolio. We tend to invest in growth, high beta, high volatility type stocks to give us port, uh, give our portfolio some, some growth movement. And so I think in the stock market, I believe there's always value. Um, and I think where you, you look right now, you would look to the areas that have not kept up with the broad market. Um, and I think some of the sectors that I mentioned would, would probably get you there. And those are the sort of risk-on, growth-oriented names. So I would totally be in line with that way of thinking. And probably our own equity-based um, investments and where we're looking for value would, would mirror that type of thinking. Now, you've got to have a strong stomach. That's not where the market's been so far this year. But looking forward, um, where the, the values might be going forward, um, I, I think, that is the way to go. I mean, keep in mind the last several years you've had very low cost capital that's been buying stocks and bonds. And as a result, there's definitely some sectors. And keep in mind, with low interest rates, you know, people have been searching for yield. So there's definitely some sectors that have gotten richly valued, the, the yield equivalents in the stock market, the consumers, um, you know, those sorts of things that uh, people are still investing in. And uh, from a value standpoint, you'd probably want to move away from those and into some other things that haven't kept up, that the, the prices are less and have more growth potential going forward in the next couple of years. Well, Michael, let's say that you don't have a strong stomach uh, for any of this and that, uh, you know, you perhaps think of actually taking some profits. How come we never hear anybody say, gee, sell a little bit? There's nothing wrong with taking a profit. You're never going to go broke taking profits. I, I agree. I mean, uh, I think in this environment, after a, 
an eight-plus-year bull market in stocks and bonds that, you know, that's not to say that they will correct in and of themselves. I mean, usually it takes more than just somebody saying it's time for correction. Um, And the economic data isn't supporting a recession or anything like that right now. And so you've had uh, stocks continue to go up for the reasons I mentioned. Corporate earnings have been good the last three quarters. Um, But uh, there's never a bad time to take some money off the table. And, I mean, I think what we're hearing from our investor base a lot lately has been, okay, I, I still want to make some money in the market. I think it has more room to run, or maybe it's getting close to the time that I pull back. But we're starting to hear more people talk about what's coming next, taking some money off the table, putting some, some investments in, even in something like our fund, that, uh, that isn't stocks only, you know, as a hedge against maybe the fact that the stock market won't go on at this rate forever. So I think it's never a bad time to take money, to take profits. Um, Keeping what you earn along the way is as important as making it. And I do think sometimes people forget that. So I'd agree with you. Michael, what's your most contrarian bet? Um, the most contrarian bet right now, I would say, would be probably equity investments in energy and materials um, for a lot of the reasons I've given, um, and probably the financials as well. Uh, I, I think that in the longer term, that's where a lot of value is in the stock market, and uh, you know we certainly have strong investments there, um, but it's it's been tough riding them at the moment. Um, but again, we we think we tend to think out, you know, two, three, five years out with with a lot of our investments, and uh, and so, you know, we do have the strong stomach to wait to wait the story out, and hopefully it uh, it plays out the way we think it will. But uh, yeah, I, that's the contrarian move right now. You know, we're we're not in a lot right. of the the high profile um, fang type of stocks. I think they're all great businesses from a consumer standpoint, um, but a lot of them are very pricey. I mean, we do own Facebook, <laughs> but uh, yeah. We got. I got. We got to leave it there. But I want to thank you very much, Michael Cugino. He is the president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio family of funds, helping to manage approximately three billion dollars based in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz, and we've been speaking about low stock market volatility. Well, if you were looking for any action in the months of April or May, you probably didn't get it. Here to tell us more about it is Laura Keller, financial reporter for Bloomberg. Laura, maybe you could just describe, has been has this uh, period of time, this May and April time frame, has this been unduly uh, low when it comes to volatility? Oh, yes, Pim, that very much has been. When we were looking back at the VIX index, which is really the best measure, um, what most people use, I mean, it's really near a record low. And it's been that way close to 10 points on that VIX index uh, for the last month. So it's really just been quite a period of just not a lot of price changes. And therefore, you know, for a lot of these traders, a lot of these banks and buy side too, not a lot of trading. You know, Laura, I was struck by the action yesterday. JP Morgan shares, for example, down about uh, a little more than 2% yesterday after the news that they and Morgan Stanley and Bank of America were going to see substantially lower trading volumes. And I'm wondering, why is this a surprise to markets? I mean, isn't this clearly portrayed in all the data that things are cooling off and that people are kind of slowing down? 
I don't I don't know if that's quite true, Lisa. I think, you know, in terms of chats, maybe people had some awareness of this. One of the analysts that we spoke to for our story, Gerard Cassidy of RBC, you know, he was saying, yes, you know, investors did expect this quarter to be less fantastic, but probably only about 5% or so down on the trading side of things. And here, JP Morgan is telling us, Marion Lake, the CFO, yesterday, you know, it's down about 15%. And Bank of America saying, look, it's probably going to end up between 10 and 12% down for the quarter. So those are definitely more significant moves than I think many investors had anticipated, even if you know they themselves understand that their own activity has been muted this quarter, and then also know that banks need volume in order to have good trading for the quarter. Well, you mentioned also in your in your story, which I recommend everyone on Bloomberg.com, is that uh, when you have this kind of low market volatility, it may be because all of the things that people thought were going to happen didn't happen, such as uh, a victory by the far right in the French presidential elections. But having said that, is no one really prepared for that, you know, out of body, out of mind experience that comes from nowhere that uh, could crush your so far pretty stellar returns for the year? You mean if anything could change coming up in the next Yes, that, you, that no one can predict. I mean, you, it's almost as if no one is buying insurance just because nothing has happened in the past. Yeah, it's a little bit that way when you start to think about ideas and why aren't you putting money to work. I think the better way to, to look at it is actually more on the side of cash. Many investors that I've talked to have said, look, we're going to cash. There was a story a couple weeks back on the Bloomberg Terminal talking about different debt investors that have moved that way as well. So once you have that happening and people are pulling back their money, they're not actively going out and buying things. So that's really what we're talking about here. I don't know that it necessarily means that you don't think that there could be something on the horizon that maybe you're positioning for in the future. It just seems like there's no, you know, sort of push for that right now. And people are actually pulling back and getting more defensive, therefore not trading as much. Laura, not all trading is the same with respect to profits for the banks. And there's some higher profit, higher margin areas like corporate debt trading uh, or mortgage-backed securities trading. Usually debt trading is more profitable than equity trading. Do you have a sense of where the heaviest declines in activity are? Right, exactly, Lisa. As you point out, electronic trading is really happening in the markets for equities. So you, as a bank, you just don't get as much fees on that. That is an area actually where Marion Lake said the bank, JP Morgan, is, was doing pretty well. So equities seem like you know they might be okay as far as trading volumes and, and revenues. But the debt side, which again, as you point out, is a lot where a lot of banks make more money, more fees. You know, we can see when we look at trace data, which is the um, industry collective for all the different prices and all the trades, the volumes are down. I mean, they're not down hugely, but, you know, 5 6%, it can be significant in a quarter. And so far, that's what we're seeing for April and May. And then when you take that and, and extrapolate for the banks, that can be a hefty bit of change for what they're not making on fees on these trades. Yeah. Especially because they've had such a good period of time of bond trading revenues over the past uh, year or so. So this comes as sort of a, a reality check whether this industry really is making a comeback. Laura Keller, thank you so much for joining us. Laura Keller covers the financial industry for Bloomberg News, and she comes to us uh, from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.